This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. It's Zoomer Radio's Theater of the Mind with Frank Proctor. Open your mind as we fill your head with amazing thrills, chills, <laughs> and laughs. Theater of the Mind, the best love programs from radio's golden age, only on Zoomer Radio. Now, here is your master storyteller, Frank Proctor. Well, thank you, and welcome to the show. Tonight, we begin with the Black Museum, a radio crime drama program produced by Harry Allen Towers in London. It was broadcast in Europe on Radio Luxembourg, a commercial radio station, and was not broadcast by the BBC until 1991. It stars one of the most recognizable voices in all of radio, Orson Welles, who was both host and narrator for stories of horror and mystery. The Black Museum was based on real-life cases from the files of Scotland Yard's Black Museum. And we'd have Orson walking through the museum. He'd pause at one of the exhibits, and his description of an artifact served as a device to lead into a wryly narrated, dramatized tale of a brutal murder or vicious crime. In the closing, now we meet again in the same place, and I tell you another tale of the Black Museum. Wells would conclude with his signature radio phrase, I remain, as always, obediently yours. With the story themes derived from objects in the collection, usually with the names of the people involved charged, but the facts remaining true to history, tonight Orson will talk about the importance of a twenty-two caliber pistol. This is Orson Welles, speaking from London. The Black Museum, the repository of death. Yes, here in the grim stone structure on the Thames, which houses Scotland Yard, is a warehouse of homicide, where everyday objects, a skillet, a screwdriver, a photograph, all are touched by murder. Here's a 22 caliber pistol. It's a familiar object. You've seen one or its picture. You've never touched one. An elegant little weapon. Blue steel. Mother of pearl inlaid grip. Beautiful in its dainty, snub-nosed wickedness. A lady's weapon, wouldn't you say, Pepper? Looks as if it wouldn't harm a fly. Pretty in its way, Inspector. Pretty and dangerous. There ought to be a law forbidding the manufacture of these toys. Every one of them is capable of death. Well, today, this little blue 22 can be found among the exhibits in the Black Museum. From the annals of the Criminal Investigation Department of the London Police, we bring you the dramatic stories of the crimes recorded by the objects in Scotland Yard's Gallery of Death. The Black Museum. Now, The Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. The 
Well, here we are in the Black Museum. Scotland Yard's Museum of Murder. It's an impressive place. And the kind of echoing awe which comes from a vaulted ceiling and somber lighting. Weird, fantastic, with a harsh, real fantasy that comes with murder. Here lies death, and so neatly. Each object placarded with a small white card labeled with black lettering, name, place, date, disposition of the case. Here's an odd-looking ashtray, soapstone. It's carved rather nicely with a crouching figure of a woman. Something decorative for your living room, but observe closely now the red-brown stain on the rim. Lift up the tray, hold it by the figure of the woman. Yes, it's comfortable in your hand, and suddenly, this is a weapon. Ah, here we are, little blue 22. Well, it's silent now. It was silent, too, during Vivian Davis's cocktail party in London's smart, sophisticated West End. In Vivian's quite shishy apartment. It was not destined to be silent, though. Not very long. It's a nice place, Vivian's apartment, if you go for ultra-modern glass and metal combinations. Nice people, too. Well, nice-looking, anyway. Young men are quite, quite impeccable. The young ladies are lovely, lush, well aware of the well-put-together attractiveness. Oh, yes, these are the chic young people. <laughs> Mary, darling, have you been watching Vivian and Donald? What else, sweet? They are a dagger points, aren't they? Well, frankly, Larry, if Viv has one more martini, she'll kill Donald with a look. An alcoholic look, at any rate. But why all the fuss and bother? If Donald wants to play, she ought to let him. I know at least three males were perfectly willing to give Viv a time, really. Mm -hmm. Including yourself, Larry, my sweet? No, darling, I'm the fourth. But then why bother? A trifle strange, isn't it? The ultra-sophisticated, the over-civilized, and yet, you know, beneath the polish, the same old jealousy that you can find in savages. Oh, yes, simple jealousy. For instance, at this moment, Vivian herself is approaching the chrome and plastic bar where Donald is mixing a drink. Donald, haven't you had enough? You're quite tight, you know. Am I, really? I asked you, Donald, haven't you had enough? I don't believe I have. Uh, you have one, dear? I've had enough, let me tell you. Uh, this is my party. You might be polite enough to pay some attention to me and a little less to that strawberry blonde. Ah, she's quite attractive in a leggy sort of way. Oh, yes, quite elemental beneath the polished surface. An interesting situation. It continues, of course, as long as the party lasts. <laughs> It continues, as a matter of fact, well past the end of the party, even to the moment when May and Larry are making their farewells, the last of the guests to go. It was simply marvellous, Viv, darling. Just delightful. I always adore your parties, Viv. The liquor flows like water. Oh, thank you both for coming. My little parties wouldn't be the same without you. Isn't that so, Donald? Huh? Yes, uh, yes, of course. Coming, Donald Lothar? Well, I don't exactly... Oh, know. Larry, please. What? Oh, put my foot in it, didn't I? I'm sorry, old man. Au revoir, Viv. Let the martinis run again sometime soon. Bye, darling. Ring me, won't you? Oh, soon, darling. Quite soon. <laughs> Donald's for it now. Did you see the look in her eye? Come along, dear. Don't be catty. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> the party's over now. Silence descends on the carpeted hallway for a moment or two. 
And then, through the muffling walls... You stupid little, silly little beast on that woman. Oh, stop it, Viv. I'm not interested in her. I've no, told you, make me look like a perfect idiot. Man versus woman. A jealous woman. Where does it go? Isn't it obvious? Of course. Somebody's bound to be hurt. Inspector Summers and Detective Pepper arrive quickly from the yard. This seems to be the weapon, Inspector. A twenty-two, Blue steel, mother-of-pearl grip. A lady's weapon, wouldn't you say, Pepper? Looks as if it wouldn't harm a fly. Pretty in its way, Inspector. Pretty and dangerous. There ought to be a law forbidding the manufacture of these toys. Every one of them is capable of death. Funny. What is? The body out here. On the landing. Yes. Well, we'll find the reason for that shortly. Not much blood. Twenty-twos don't make much of a hole. Uh, stay here, Pepper. I want the pathologist to see the body before it goes to the morgue. You know the procedure. I'll be inside with the uh, prime and only suspect. Yes, sir. I understand. All right. Tell me how it happened. Don't you dare to talk to me like that. Take hold of yourself, Miss Davis. I need the answers to a few questions. I'll answer that. Don't you dare. That's my telephone. Yes? No? This is Inspector Summers of Scotland Yard. I see. I'm sorry, Lady Munsey. You can't speak to your daughter just now. Yes. She'll be coming down to the yard. You can come there if you wish. Goodbye. Now will you leave me alone? You know who my mother is. Which do you prefer, to answer my questions here or to come down to the yard? I refuse to answer anything. That won't look well in the report, miss. Oh, get out of here. Get out. Take hold of yourself, Miss Davis. I told you and told you. Donald and I were arguing. I suppose I grabbed the gun from under the pillow where I keep it. He tried to take it away from me. And next I knew there was a shot and he was mumbling something about a doctor. And then, then he was dead. Oh, now leave me alone. Leave me alone. Inspector Summers felt that further questioning was indicated. The location he chose was his own office at the yard. Where did you get the gun, Miss Davis? My husband gave it to me several years ago. Are you married? I was. I'm divorced. Inspector Summers thought of many questions. Where did you struggle over the gun? In the bedroom. I see. Why do you use linoleum for a floor covering in the bedroom? Oh, because it's easy to keep clean and because it's chic and because... Oh, what has that to do with Donald? I'm asking the questions, Miss Davis. Oh, yes, there were many, many questions. How long have you lived at that address? How long did you know Donald Martin? Have you ever bought any ammunition for that gun? What were you quarreling about? It went on and on. And finally... Very well, Miss Davis. We shan't hold you. But don't leave London. And uh, your mother is waiting for you. You'd better go home with her. We are sealing your apartment. <laughs> Thank you.
inconvenient matter, violent death from a gunshot wound. Apartments are sealed, people investigate. One's whole life is turned inside out. And then there are the experts. The scientific facts contradict some of Miss Davis's statements, Inspector. They do? For instance? There's no evidence of any scorching of the clothing around the bullet hole. From that fact and the spread of the smoke stain, I deduce that the gun was held from three to six inches from Martin's chest. As the blood ran down the chest, he must have been standing at the time. It would be practically impossible for him to hold the weapon himself in that position. Could he have touched the barrel, say, in an attempt to take it away from Miss Davis? In that case, his fingers would be singed, or at least blackened. They're not. I do not believe that the man was touching the weapon at all when it was fired. An embarrassing conclusion, to say the least. There were other things. I've checked Martin's shoes at the morgue, Inspector. Well? If they struggled in that bedroom, on that polished linoleum floor, his shoes would have had to scratch the floor. They're leather-soled, and they have metal taps on the tips. Very good. Another discrepancy. Now, uh, Pepper, I think we'd better have a bit of a talk with the neighbors. Are you certain of that, Mrs. Merritt? I am positive. It's not the first time they yelled at each other, those two. And the walls are thin. Do you have it down, Pebble? Yes, sir. They had a quarrel about two weeks ago. He left. She leaned out of the window, only half-dressed, and shouted at him, Laugh, baby, laugh for the last time. And then she fired a gun at him. Thank you. Now then, Mrs. Merritt, before the shot last night, did you catch any of the words they said? Yes. Oh, no, sir. But, well, her bedroom is next to mine. And I heard her say, as clear as day, and at the top of her lungs, I will kill you. Thank you, Mrs. Merritt. Anything else? No, sir. Very well. Uh, let's go, Peppa. All right, Peppa. I think we have the makings of a case. Pick her up. We'll book her for willful murder. And today... The little blue 22, which was to play such an important part in the case, can be seen among the other exhibits in the Black Museum. And now we continue with the Black Museum, starring Orson Welles. <laughs> As the inspector said, they felt they had a case. The evidence was piling up. Vivian Davis was arrested. Her defense counsel was a distinguished member of the bar. The prosecutor assigned was no less brilliant. But some of the conversation about the case was, was well, a lot less brilliant. Why, if Larry and I had stayed, we might have seen the whole thing. And darling, those letters. Imagine leaving letters like that lying in your bureau drawer where anyone might find them. And do you suppose the prosecution will use them for evidence? <laughs> this is one trial I simply shall not miss. Let me say here and now, if May owns a gun, I'm walking out, and at once. But Viv always was unstable, you know. That's the kind who'll pull a gun on you when you least expect it. Not for me, old man. Not for me. I always said she was no better than you'd think. Wild parties at all hours, firing guns around, drinking... Oh, I dare say the woman wasn't happy. But then who is? Now I ask you, who is? Poor Viv. 
I understand the food in prison is all starches. See in the headlines, this is a juicy one, what? I'm to be a witness. You don't say. Really now, you don't say. They tried the case in public gossip long before it came to proper trial. And when the proper trial began, the courtroom was crowded naturally with bright young women and polished young men, the familiars of the defendant. This, however, failed to ruffle the solemnity of a British court. I shall permit no demonstrations. At the least lapse from proper decorum, I shall have the courtroom cleared. And that settled that. The trial proceeded. Vivian Davis, in simple black, sat in the dock between the two wardresses assigned a guarder. On the witness stand, the pathologist repeated his evidence and his conclusions for the prosecution. There was no cross-examination. With Inspector Summers, it was another matter. Inspector, you heard the prison doctor testify that when Miss Davis was admitted to the prison after her arrest, he found bruises on her arms and on one thigh. Yes, sir. And that such bruises might have been sustained in a struggle. Yes, sir. Very well. Now then, in your experience, have you found that when one person handles a gun, that person's fingerprints are usually found on the weapon? That has been my experience. However, if two parties struggled for possession of a certain weapon, would there be fingerprints? In most cases, no, sir. They tend to smudge or eliminate each other's prints. This weapon, which you've identified and which has been entered in evidence as Exhibit A, did you find this weapon at the scene of the alleged crime? I did. Did you examine it carefully? I did. Did you have it tested for fingerprints? I did. Did you find any? Yes, sir. How many sets? Only one set of prints were on that gun. Whose were they, Inspector? Now tell the jury, please, whose fingerprints were on that gun? Only my own. One more point, Inspector. You stated that you found a bullet in the wall of the bedroom. Correct? Yes, sir. Have you any reason to believe this bullet was fired on the night of the alleged crime? It could have been fired at any time, I suppose. Thank you, Inspector. That's all. Mrs. Merritt, the eager next-door neighbour, had her proverbial day in court. Yes, sir. Just as I told the inspector, she screamed at him, hanging out of the window only half-dressed, and then she fired a shot at him. Counsel for the defence spent little time in the cross-examination of Mrs. Merritt. Madam, did you actually see Miss Davis fire a pistol or gun of some sort at the deceased? I heard the shot after she yelled at him. You said she was only half-dressed at the time. Is that correct? Yes, sir. Then you must have seen her. Well, I took one look, and after that I only listened. Why? Why, Mrs. Merritt? When a woman is in her condition, no other woman cares to watch her. I see. This is your opinion. It certainly is. Your Lordship, I respectfully request that the answers to the last two questions be stricken from the record as constituting an opinion and not evidence. Further, on the grounds that opinions are not warranted, as the witness is not qualified as an expert. Well... The uh, clerk will strike the last two answers from the record, and the jury is instructed to ignore the testimony. Uh, proceed. No further questions. Thank you, Mrs. Merritt. Back and forth, the battle raged, a battle for a woman's life. The case for the Crown was ably presented... The defense, by cross-examination, 
My objections in the record sought to upset testimony to establish points which could be played upon later, the climax of the trial, when Vivian Davis herself took the stand in her own defense. Now, Miss Davis, do you understand the seriousness of this situation? Of course. I refer to the testimony that you once fired a gun at Donald Martin from your bedroom window. Is this true? No, it's not true. What did happen that evening? He'd come to see me. He'd asked me for money to pay a gambling debt. And I refused. We quarreled. And he left. I was furious and I called to him from my window. Then I went back into the room and fired one shot to make him think I'd killed myself. What happened then? Oh, Donald... Mr. Martin came rushing back and we... We were friends again. Miss Davis, have you ever pointed a weapon at Mr. Martin? No, never. Have you wanted to? No, never. Did you shoot him the night he died? No! Have you any recollection of his having spoken to you between the time he was shot and the moment he died? I'll never forget it as long as I live. What did he say? He said, I wish the doctor would hurry. I, I want to tell him that this was an accident. It's not your fault. He said it over and over. Davis, that the truth of your first public quarrel is, as it was stated by your previous witness, that you did fire out of your window at Mr. Martin. Oh, no, never. I fired in the room. I wanted to frighten him. Miss Davis, is this your pistol? Yes. Is this the weapon which killed Mr. Martin? Yes. And on the night this gun, your gun, killed Mr. Martin, you had a quarrel, a second quarrel. Yes. You were, to put it simply... Jealous of his behavior with other women. Oh, I was so jealous, I threatened to kill myself. You threatened to kill yourself? Yes. Then why did you shout, I will kill you? No, 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 I never said that. What did you say, Miss Davis? I, I never said I'll shoot myself. The other, I never said. Why should I? I was jealous for those because I loved him. Oh, you've got to believe me. I loved him. I did. I did. <laughs> There was more, much more, over and over. But they never managed to shake her on the essential points. I never pointed a gun at Donald in my life. And, of course... I never said I'd kill him. I said I'd kill myself. At long last, with Vivian Davis on the verge of collapse, the prosecutor let her go. Shortly thereafter, the defense rested. Summations were brief. The prosecution... This woman is guilty of the crime with which she is charged. There is no doubt in our minds, nor should there be any in yours, that she held the pistol and fired the shot. For the defense? It is clear that no woman kills the man she loves, despite the violence of their causes. This was an accident. It is clear that it was an accident. The presiding justice was clear and concise in his charge to the jury. The gentlemen of the jury, in conclusion... Let me advise you, there are three possible verdicts you may return under the present indictment. Guilty of murder, guilty of manslaughter, or not guilty of any offense. 
I commend the accused to your most painstaking deliberations. The jury filed out. They stayed out for two long, weary hours. There was chatter in the courtroom. There always is. But even the gossip was subdued. Everybody waited. Waited. It seems perfectly incredible. A murder trial, and I've been in orbit since the beginning. I do hope the judge wasn't as much against her as he seemed to be. It was really too exciting for words. I've had more dinner invitations because I know Viv. Oh, well, after all, the poor girl might be hanged, you know. Grisly oh, thought. Well, for my part, even if she gets off, there'll be one advantage. She'll never be my neighbour again. And that will be an improvement, I'd say. And at long last, the waiting was over. The prisoner arose in the dock at the judge's request. The foreman of the jury faced the prisoner in the court. The age-old formula was intoned by the clerk. Members of the jury, have you agreed upon a verdict? We have. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of murder? Not guilty. Do you find the prisoner guilty or not guilty of manslaughter? Not guilty. Yet, despite that verdict, the little blue 22 can be seen today among the exhibits in the Black Museum. Orson Welles will be back with you in just a moment. person is Orson Welles. Yes, they let Vivian Davis go free. In many minds, the question was, and still is, did Vivian Davis get away with murder? Frankly, I don't believe anyone gets away with murder. Murder stays with a killer, twisting mind and heart and soul, even in the unsuspected and therefore unsolved cases. Where Vivian Davis was concerned, perhaps the real crime was insecurity and the kind of violent jealousy that grows from fear. I don't know. That's for the psychologists, not for you and I to decide. Meanwhile, the little blue 22 remains in its customary place in Scotland Yard, in the Black Museum. And now, until we meet again next time, in the same place, and I tell you another story about the Black Museum, I remain, as always, obedient for yours. The 
Black Museum, starring Orson Welles, is presented by arrangement with Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer Radio Attractions. The program is written by Ara Marion, with original music composed and conducted by Sidney Torch. Produced by Harry Allen Towers. On this Friday evening, I invite you to stand by for some laughs provided by Edgar Bergen and his little friend Charlie McCarthy as they welcome special guest Rosemary Clooney. Time now for Edgar Bergen and Charlie McCarthy. brings you the Edgar Bergen Show with Charlie McCarthy. It's Sunday night and time again for Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy, Mortimer Snurd, and Ray Noble and his orchestra, brought to you by Richard Hudnut, makers of scientific hair preparation. Tonight, our guest is the number one singing star, Rosemary Clooney. And now, celebrating Edgar Bergen Day in Decatur, Michigan, here is Edgar Bergen with Charlie McCarthy. Ah, bless you all, bless you all for that applause. And to our new sponsor, Richard Hudnut, bless you for those checks. (laughs) Well, Charlie? Yeah? Here we are again. What an opening line. (laughs) Bergen, we're here to launch the season, not sink it. All right. (laughs) This is the first show of our 15th year on radio, and it gives me a warm feeling inside that we have chosen to do it right here in Decatur, Michigan, the very town where I gave my first performance. Isn't it sort of like uh, returning to the scene of the crime? No. (laughs) Just think Decatur. Decatur. I once walked barefoot down these streets. Yeah. You walked barefoot everywhere until you met me. Oh, no. <laughs> and on Sundays, I would dress up in my Buster Brown collar and with my blonde locks streaming down over my shoulders. Yeah. Well, that stream dried up all right. <laughs> It's nice that you could get back here for your second childhood. Oh, no. I wish you wouldn't give the people the impression that I'm old. At my last birthday, weren't there 35 candles on my cake? Well, there were on the piece I had, yeah. 
mention them, Bergen, and I'll keep knocking them out of the park. Yeah. <laughs> well, joke if you must, Charlie. But when I think of how nice these people have been to me, my friends, I, I sort of choke up. Well, I'd let you use my handkerchief, Bergen, but I, I got a dead beetle tied up in it all. <laughs> I'm proud of Decatur. Oh, it was in this very hamlet. Down, boy, down. All right. <laughs> this little hamlet certainly produced a big ham. All right. <laughs> I am moved to make a speech at this time. How will I begin? Well, I'll talk about your operation. That's a good opening. All right. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen. Sure drags, doesn't it? No. <laughs> As I look into your smiling faces... Who's smiling? All right. I've seen happier faces on a dollar watch. All right. <laughs> As I look into your smiling faces, I remember my life among you. I came here as a baby. Things were rough then. No talcum powder? No. <laughs> it was in this very theater, in the silent picture days, that I played a player piano. A player piano? Gad, what talent. Yeah. <laughs> On Delaware Street, there's a little church. And it was in the basement of that church that I gave my first performance. I... I did bird imitations. Bird imitations? Oh, no. Yes, yes. Yes, and they were so natural, the birds loved me and followed me. Well, I've heard people say you were for the birds. <laughs> Go ahead, Sonny. Yeah. Listen to this one. There. Uh-huh. You did it, didn't you? Yes, yes. Uh, could you identify the bird? Well, now, let me see. I would say... I would say that was a bald eagle crying for his toupee. No. <laughs> no, it wasn't. Was it the making call of a pair of corduroy trousers? No. <laughs> it was the yellow-breasted sapsucker. No, red. Yes. Well, for your sake, I hope it was a female. <laughs> Why? Well, you'll never be able to explain the egg you just laid. Oh. <laughs> So maybe I laid an egg. But I'm glad I'm here. You know, it feels good to be back home in Michigan. It's just like that song, remember? I want to go back on the farm with a milk pail on my arm. Doing what I did again back in Michigan. You going to say hello to me? No. Oh, sure. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. Naturally. Uh, hello there. Hello there, Mister. Uh, uh, well, well, well. Hello there, Mister. Uh, uh, oh, come, come. Uh, Mister. Uh, oh. oh, you know. Mister, 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 Mister. Come, come now. Your mind is wandering. That's okay. <laughs> Leave it alone, and it'll come home. <laughs> dickery, dickery, doc. No, no. <laughs> well, did 
summer on your farm? Yeah, yeah. Yes, indeed. Uh, McCall Bessie had a calf. Uh-huh. Boy or a girl? Well, I guess Bessie's a girl or she couldn't have had a calf. <laughs> I suppose so, Bill. Seems to figure out that way. Yeah. <laughs> Vacation time goes fast, doesn't it? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's the way it goes, all right. Yeah. Say, <laughs> hey, Mr. Bergen, who was that feller bellering about beauty as I came in here? Oh, well, that was Bill Baldwin. Bill? Yes. Name sounds familiar. Has he had it long? Oh, yeah. <laughs> he was talking about Richard Hudnut. Yeah. Well, you can see he's the gossipy type, yeah. <laughs> Bill was doing a commercial. Oh, he was? Yes. You see, a commercial serves to tell the audience about the sponsor's product. Well, now, that sounds real clever. I wonder why somebody hasn't thought about that before. Oh, <laughs> Do you know who our sponsor is? Well, I think I caught the name was uh, Mr. Walnut. No, no, no. <laughs> Butternut. No, no, no. It's Richard Hudnut. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a fellow. Yeah. He's our sponsor. Of course, you know what a sponsor is. Oh, it's the husband of a spinster. No, no. <laughs> Sponsor pays for the program. Well, bless his heart. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Hudnut does so because he wants to tell the people about Richard Hudnut, home permanent wave. What's that for? To make your home wavy? No, no. <laughs> no, it's though a girl can fix her hair at home to be attractive and wavy. I saw a girl once, her hair was straight and uh, her scalp was wavy. Is that true? <laughs> Well, perhaps her hair was straight because she failed to use a home permanent that had special neutralizer. Maybe so. I don't know. Yeah. You see, the Richard Hudnut home permanent has a neutralizing agent. You know how it works. Oh, well, yeah. The agent comes to the girl's house and uh, neutralizes her. Oh, no. <laughs> is a scientific process that safeguards and preserves the natural vitality and the resilience of the hair. Oh, no! (laughs) By the way, Mortimer, you have very attractive hair. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been growing hair for nigh on to 14 years. (laughs) What's the secret of your beautiful hair? Well, you saddle soap. Oh, I... Next time, I suggest you try Richard Hudnut Shampoo. Girls all over the world use that product. Well, why? Why? Well, because... Well, confidentially, it helps them to catch a man. You mean the Hudnut stuff helps them run faster? Oh, no. <laughs> well, it's because it makes them look more beautiful. Oh. And remember the old saying. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, what? Well, I'll tell you. <laughs> a thing of beauty... A thing of beauty is... Is what? Well, it ain't me. I know that. <laughs> well, I think I'll go home and put some of that shampoodle on my noodle. Well, toodle-oodle. <laughs> During our 15 years in radio, Charlie and I have had the pleasure of working with many fine singers. The young lady I'm about to introduce now, in the short space of a few years, has established herself as one of the all-time greats. Her record sales are, well, to coin a phrase, record sales. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present Miss Rosemary Clooney. (laughs) 
half as much as I love you. You wouldn't worry me half as much as you do. You're nice to me when there's no one else around. You only build me up to let me down. If you miss me half as much. As I miss you, you wouldn't stay away half as much as you do. I know that I would never be this blue if you. As I love you, if you miss me half as much as I miss you, you wouldn't stay away half as much as you do. When the show's over, how about joining me in a little stroll down Lover's Lane? How do you know this town has a Lover's Lane? After we're through, that's what they'll call it. <laughs> well, Charlie, I like you. You do, huh? Putty, putty, putty. But you see, I'm a woman. Yeah. Well, even Eisenhower and Stevenson would agree on that. <laughs> what I mean is... Hello, Rosemary. Hello, Charlie. Yeah, Hello. I've been having such a splendid time talking to my old friend. Yeah. My, how they love me. Oh, sure, sure. Bertie, do you want to know what the people in this town really think of you? Well, certainly. Well, I found out. How? Well, I wormed them out of... Out of... Out of... <laughs> 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 yeah, glasses recharged, <laughs> I wormed it out of them with my tape recorder. Tape worm the coffee, they called me. Uh-huh. So you talked to my old friends about me. Uh-huh. Oh, I'd love to hear those interviews. I probably will blush a little. Oh, boy. Are you asking for it? Yeah. <laughs> well, Bertie, Ray Noble and I sort of made a production of it. Music and everything. And here it goes. And... <laughs> Thank you. 
ladies and gentlemen. The voices you are about to hear are real voices. They are the voices of Bergen's friends. And his enemies. Who outnumber his friends. <laughs> the school teacher who taught him figures. The girl next door. Who also taught him figures. <laughs> this is Bergen the boy. Who grew into a man. Why well, say, you know, we had exactly the same arrangement in England. <laughs> the first person interviewed was Bergen's old girlfriend. <laughs> You know, Charles, looking up Edgar's old girlfriend makes me feel a bit sentimental. Someday I'm going back to England to the girl that I left behind. Is she waiting for you? Well, I'm not exactly sure, old boy. She's married now and has ten children, you think? <laughs> I won't believe we're through till I hear it from her own lips. <laughs> well, the girl had to do something while she was waiting. Oh, yeah. <laughs> This is the place, Blossom McDougal. I say, Charles, I'm key to a concert pitch. Edgar's <laughs> always talked of how beautiful Blossom was. Oh, quite, quite. Someone's coming. Oh, boy. <laughs> Rick, don't let it crawl back in the sink. It'll fly to me. I'm afraid there's been some mistake, you know. Uh, we're looking for Blossom. Oh, yeah, Blossom. You've certainly gone to Pops. <laughs> uh, well, you're kind of a seedy pair yourself. <laughs> well, old girl... Oh, and I do mean old girl. <laughs> we're here to get your memories of Edgar Bergen, you see. Bergen? Uh-huh. Edgar Bergen? Yes. Never heard of him. <laughs> Your left an impression. I see, when I was young, I had so many boyfriends. Sam, Joe, Harry, Tom, Phil, George. <laughs> They'd all sit around begging for my kisses. Uh, really? Yeah. Fellas, where are you now that I need you? <laughs> this might help you to recognize Edgar. Uh, here's a recent picture we have of him. Oh, let's see. Yes, uh-huh. sir. Uh, oh, what a horrible way to go. <laughs> I knew I remember him. Egghead, the silent sweet. Bergen <laughs> <laughs> said it was a big romance you two had. He did? Yeah. When Edgar came over to see me, all he did was sit around squeaking his high button shoes. So I finally said, Father has his bank turned. Now's your chance to steal a kiss. What did he do? He kissed Father. <laughs> Good old egghead. Now, Charlie, that's not true. Blossom was crazy about me. The next voice you hear is that of one of the town's ex-mayors. <laughs> How do you do, Mr. Mayor? Uh, we should like to ask a favor of you. Boys, you've come to the right party. Uh-huh. From the rock-bound coast of Maine to the sunny slops of California. <laughs> the name of honest Mike Perry stands for honesty, integrity, and devotion to this great community. If you want a traffic ticket fix, it'll cost you two bucks. Now, look, loose and Quivery, that's not what we came to see you about. Well, if it's those stories about Honest Mike taking grabs, they're lies. 
I know that after two years in office on a salary of $2,000 a year, I retired with over $90,000 in the bank. <laughs> but I can explain it. How? My wife was a very thrifty shopper. <laughs> the old girl must have run into some smashing bargains, almost. No insinuations, brush lip. <laughs> of course, I did make a little money out of the new fire alarm boxes I installed. You had to put a quarter in before you pulled the lever. Well, that doesn't sound too bad. Well, the fire engine didn't come till you got two plums and a cherry. <laughs> Can we get down to business now? You see, we're here to get your recollections of Edgar Bergen. Bergen? Uh-huh. Edgar Bergen? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And what does he do? Well, he's my partner. Oh, he's in the lumber business. Eh? <laughs> now, look, Lumpy. Oh, wait a minute, now. Uh, surely you must remember Edgar Bergen. Oh, yes, indeed. Why, 20 years ago, on Arbor Day, we planted a tree in his honor. It was so weak, we had to put a stick in the ground beside it. Did the tree live? No, the tree died, but the stick grew. What happened to the stick? Young man, did Bergen ever tell you how you happened to be? Well, that doesn't. I'll listen, guys. Uh, no. So, before we leave, do you have any other recollections of Edgar? Yes, I remember he did get into a little scrape with the police. Uh-huh. He drove a car that wasn't his. Did, did, did he steal a car? Well, not exactly. Uh-huh. You see, he found it parked in front of a cemetery, and he figured the owner was dead. <laughs> Mayor. The next person we interviewed was Bergen's old school teacher. She's 87 years old and retired now. Good afternoon, madam. We'd like to talk to you about Bergen. Oh, thanks. I'll have one. <laughs> One Bergen? Oh, I thought you said a shot of bourbon. <laughs> my doctor says that for my health, I should have just a wee drop before going to bed. I see. You know something? I find myself going to bed four or five times a night. <laughs> she uses her hot water bottle for a chaser. <laughs> Perhaps we didn't make ourselves quite clear. Uh, we should like to hear your recollections of Edgar Bergen, you see. Bergen? Yes. Uh, was he the little boy who dropped the live frog down my bottle? Before I got it out, I'd erased half the blackboard. <laughs> I thought I was something with my guided missile spitballs. <laughs> well, that doesn't sound exactly like Edgar. Tell us what kind of a pupil was Edgar. Oh, Edgar was very good in... Uh, oh, he was excellent in... Uh, Oh, he got good marks in... Uh, he was a dope. <laughs> Thank you. The prosecution rests. I don't understand it. Those people... Well, they, I guess they, we did a good job of impersonating those people. I hope Edgar falls for it. Turn that off, Ray. Hey, he's really... That's it, Charlie. It was all a fake. You hired actors to record all that slander about me. <laughs> Charlie, why? 
Why did you have to play a trick like that on our 15th anniversary? Begging? If it wasn't for tricks like that, we wouldn't have a 15th anniversary. <laughs> Now, here is our lovely guest, Rosemary Clooney, with her second song of the evening, Looking for a Boy. I am just a little girl who's looking for a little boy, who's looking for a girl. Tell me, please, where can he be? The loving he will bring to me the harmony I'm dreaming of. It'll be goodbye. To my tale of woe, when he says hello, so I am just a little girl who's looking for a little boy, who's looking for a girl. If it's true that love affairs are all arranged in heaven, my guardian angel's holding out on me. So I'm looking for a boy, but five foot six or seven, and won't be happy till I'm on his knees. I'll be blue until he comes my way. Hope he'll take the cue when I am saved. I am just a little girl who's looking for a little boy. Who's looking for a girl to love? Edgar Bergen will be back in a moment. Shine up your hair. Get the shampoo with shine in it. Richard Hutnut Enriched Cream Shampoo. Moonshine. Richard Hutnut Shampoo shines up dull hair. Makes use of nature's own beauty secret, real egg formula. Egg is a natural beautifier for dry, dull hair. Scientists agree about that. And when you use Richard Hutnut Enriched Cream Shampoo you get the natural benefits of real egg formula. How it shines up dull, drab hair. That's why the beauty experts at the Richard Hudnut Fifth Avenue Beauty Salon say, this is the shampoo with shine in it. 
You'll love using it. It's a smooth, fragrant, liquid cream. And it makes your hair so shiny, so soft, so manageable. Shine up your hair. With Richard Hudnut Enriched Cream Shampoo. Oh, Mr. Baldwin, I just brought in two dozen eggs from the farm for Mr. Hudnut to use in his shampoo. Oh, well, that, that, that's wonderful, oh, sure, Mortimer. Sure, yeah. By the way, how much are you uh, asking for your eggs today? Well, I'm asking 60 cents a dozen for the big ones and 70 cents for the small ones. <laughs> but, but why do you ask more for the small ones? Small ones are harder to find. Oh, Mortimer. <laughs> Charlie, this is my old friend, Dr. Bope, who took care of my aches and pains when I was in grammar school. Uh, you know, Doctor, I've heard a lot about Decatur from Bergen. Why is it people from small towns are so proud of it? Well, Charlie, it may be the feeling that in a small town such as ours, where everybody knows all his neighbors, there is no such a thing as being ignored. Everybody is not only a person, but in this way, a personage. We never said there was that boy playing the piano at the show last night. We said that Bergen boy. This belonging and sharing is the precious heritage of all small towns. Heritage that is produced in many of our greatest Americans to derive their philosophy from this democratic condition. CBS Radio Network. Thank you for listening. I hope you'll be with me next week as I uncover more gems from the golden age of radio. Thanks to Paul Stringer and Joel Schoenwell for technical support. The executive producer for Theater of the Mind is Moses Neimer. I'm Frank Proctor. Have a wonderful weekend. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.